From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. We begin this episode of Land Stories with a correction. In the episode that discussed the creation of Lansing Community College's downtown campus and the construction of Dart Auditorium, I had mentioned that there was a house on Lansing Community College's campus called the Turner House and that it had been demolished in the close proximity of time in which Dart Auditorium was built, which is around 1980. But that was incorrect, and I want to thank my colleague Rob Edwards for pointing out my error. The building that uh, is in question, the Turner House, actually stood for quite a bit longer than that. It was not torn down until sometime in the early part of the first decade of this century. So that would be the early 2000s. And again, thank you very much, Rob, for correcting me on my error. And if any of you ever have a correction, question, comment, concern, feel free to get a hold of me. My contact details are on the webpage, lccconnect.org, where you can find past episodes of this program, plus all of the others that we produce here as part of the LCC Connect series. The idea of memory, therefore, and why some people remember one thing one way, remember one thing the other, or why certain people think they know something about a historical event, a historical person, a historical phenomenon, and when it turns out, well, actually, this story is a little bit different than what they initially thought. That is the theme of this episode of Land Stories. And to begin that exploration of that idea, we are going to take another little stroll around downtown Lansing. For those of you that have listened to past episodes, you know that we like to take strolls around Lansing on this program, and we are going to do that. Our stroll today is going to take us not very far from Lansing Community College's campus. We're going to walk just a couple blocks to the south down Capitol Avenue, and we're going to stand in front of the beautiful Michigan Capitol building. We're going to walk up the sidewalk that takes us to the main entrance of the building, but we're not going to go into that building. We're going to stop. We're going to stop because we're going to encounter a statue. A statue of a man by the name of Austin Blair. There are many monuments and statues on the Capitol lawn, But actually, there's only one that is of an actual person, meaning the other statues or monuments are representative of certain events, uh, groups of people. Many of them are war monuments, actually. Many of them are Civil War-era monuments. And in fact, the state capitol building itself is in many ways, a gigantic monument, a living monument, a working monument to Michigan's contribution to the Union during the Civil War. And it is that war, the Civil War, 
that brings us to the man that we're looking at on top of a pedestal. That man is Austin Blair. And Austin Blair has the distinction of being the only person with a statue honoring him on the Michigan Capitol lawn for a very good reason. And that reason is indeed because of his contributions to the preservation of the Union during the Civil War. But our look at Austin Blair gives us an opportunity, therefore, to also consider the concept of historical memory, to look at why certain things are remembered or forgotten in the way they are. And I didn't realize it at the time, but as it turns out, somewhere deep in the caverns of my mind's filing system, I believe the inspiration for this episode came many years ago. It is probably not going to surprise any of you out there if I told you that I saw something on social media, and that sparked an idea in my mind. Here's what I saw on social media. I saw Confederate flags in the back of people's pickup trucks who were parked at or about Austin Blair Park in Jackson. And this was several years ago. And it was a rally that took place round about the time, actually, of the summer that, not too far from there, many years earlier, the Republican Party was founded. And Austin Blair had a role to play in the Republican Party. I'm going to discuss that in a moment. It was a very important role. He's actually one of the founders of the Republican Party. And, as I will also discuss momentarily, that party had its founding at a meeting in Jackson, Michigan on the 6th of July in 1854. So, why then would a park bearing the name of one of the people who truly did keep the United States together during that terrible civil war that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans, a war that, in Austin Blair's own words, was fought over what he called the vilest crime in existence, slavery, have a rally in the 21st century of people bearing a banner that, while not the state banner of the Confederacy, nonetheless has, through the years, come to define in popular culture nowadays the side that, well lost the Civil War, and indeed tried to break the Union apart. That brings to mind historical memory. And historical memory is something that, on the sounds of it, sounds like, what the heck is he talking about, historical memory? How can somebody remember something historically if he or she did not live through that event? Ah, that is the distinction, really, of what we mean by historical memory compared to memory. So, I have memory. You have memory. I have memory of being in Jackson, Michigan. I've been there many times, actually. Uh, Having grown up in the southern part of Michigan, Jackson was not that far of a drive from where I grew up, over by Kalamazoo. And so, I've been there many times, and I've even been to the park that 
the meeting of the Republican Party was held in 1854 that I referenced only moments ago. And I had that memory because I've been there before. But I also have in my mind what one might call the collective memory of a nation. And the collective memory of the American nation is something that we inherit through our schools, through our parents, our grandparents, our older siblings, our aunts and uncles, our cousins, our best friends, our work colleagues, the news media that we consume, the podcasts we listen to, the radio programs that we enjoy. Through all of those transmissions of knowledge, we end up forming an idea of the past. Whether we realize it or not, most of that programming, most of that information that we receive has a historical component to it. If you take the word history out of it, it actually seems quite obvious. For example, how do you know if you haven't filled your car up with gasoline in a few weeks that the price of gas is four and a half or five dollars a gallon? Well, because probably somebody told you, or you drove down the road and you saw the sign outside of a gas station that read 479 or 489 or 529, depending on how recently you filled up. And that's information that's transmitted to you. You drive by that same gas station six months from now, and maybe gas is $6.99 a gallon. Maybe it's $2.99 a gallon. And you remember back to six months prior when it was $4.89 a gallon. And you have a memory of what happened. And you can talk to other people about it, and you can all sit around and chat about the price of gas, where it's been, where it's going, and you are engaging in an episode of historical memory. Now think about issues that come and go, but also think about events that happen to a nation that exist over an extended period of time and develop over extended periods of time to the point where the collective body politic experiences those events. And everybody experiences them differently because all of us have our own perception of the events going on around us. But there's enough sharing of knowledge that as we experience these events together and they become part of our culture, they become part of our mindset, we develop a concept of nationhood. We identify with certain themes, with certain ideas, with certain people. And as the nation develops historically, over time, we pass these ideas on to all the relationships that I mentioned only moments ago. So this all, indeed, is a bit of an endeavor into postmodern historical theory, which is something that was quite prominent in the 1960s and 70s especially. But we won't go too far down that road. Not on this episode, maybe in a later date. For now... I want us to think about that idea of historical memory. And in doing so, let's get back for just a moment to the Confederate flags 
flying high there at Austin Blair Park in Jackson, Michigan, a few years ago. How do we get to the point where a park that is named in honor of one of the men who, well, worked hard, as an understatement, to preserve the Union. Actually, he staked his entire political career on it. We're going to talk about that here momentarily. And indeed, lived through an event that killed hundreds of thousands of people. It is absolutely impossible, really, to adequately uh, explain, I think, now the, really, what the Civil War meant to the people that lived through it and, of course, the people that didn't survive through it. The best, the best uh, description I think I can have you read is from an, an absolutely outstanding book that was published a few years ago by a historian. Her name is Drew Gilpin Faust, and the book is called This Republic of Suffering. And if any of you have ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan... It has often been remarked that the opening scene of that movie is one of the more accurate uh, depictions on film of what it was like to be part of that operation during the Second World War. Uh, it's a very uh, riveting piece of film and Quite frankly, it's it's difficult to watch. Actually, when you put your try to put your mind uh, into the people who actually lived through that event, and many of us, myself included, certainly know people that are new. Unfortunately, now many of them have passed away, but new people that that did indeed live through that event. The first chapter of the book, "This Republic of Suffering," is very much a literary um, accomplishment of a similar magnitude in terms of really getting to the heart of what the Civil War was like in the sheer violence and horror of those who lived through it. So how do we get then to the early part of the 2010s? And all of that horror, all of that destruction that was the attempt at dismantling the United States, how do we get to the point where people probably with little, if any, knowledge of what the Confederate flag, as we call it nowadays, actually stood for, how do we get to the point where they're flying that on a park named after the governor of Michigan, one of the founders of the Republican Party, whose raison d'etat during the time was to preserve the Union and prevent the very cause that that flag stood for from destroying that Union. We're going to get to, as far as we can, uh, in answering that question. And I want to keep this in mind as we're we're exploring the idea of memory. So let's span the decades. We're actually going to span the centuries now. And let's go back to the beginning of Austin Blair's life. 
And it starts not far actually from a place in New York that made its appearance on Land Stories just a few episodes ago. Uh, For those of you who are faithful listeners to this program, you will remember a few episodes ago we discussed who Lansing's named after. And Lansing, as it turns out, is named after a gentleman by the name of John Lansing Jr. because Lansing, Michigan is named after Lansing, New York, which is named after John Lansing Jr., And go back and listen to that episode of Land Stories, and you will be fascinated to learn all of the connections that Michigan has with the state of New York in the 19th century. And as it turns out, Austin Blair is another one. He is another individual that we can trace back to the state of New York. Blair was born in Caroline, New York. Caroline is a tiny little town along the way to Ithaca, and it's only about 20 miles, actually, from Lansing, New York. So, we're in upstate New York, as the region's called now, not far from the Finger Lakes region, and in 1818, on the 18th of February, actually, Austin Blair was born in Caroline, New York. He grew up in New York, uh, studied law, was admitted to the New York bar, And then, like many people from New York, he ended up moving to Michigan. Michigan was one of the uh, most sought-after places to move in the United States in the 1830s, the 1840s. And there are a lot of reasons for that. We had lots of good agricultural land here. Michigan was deemed to have a very favorable climate compared to other parts of the country at the time. And... Of course, Michigan had a very ample supply of water. The very same reasons why, in the year 2022, uh, people still find Michigan to be a very useful place to live. So Austin Blair moves here in 1841. And in 1841, he enters politics. He first is elected as the clerk of Eaton County. And then he ends up moving to Jackson, and from there, he gets elected to the State House in 1845. In 1848, he is a delegate to the Free Soil National Convention in Buffalo. And the Free Soil National Convention was called so because this was the Free Soil Party. And we're going to have to take a little bit of a, a turn away from the biography of Austin Blair to look at the politics. He was becoming a very important part of it at the time. And that political movement that the Free Soil Party and others that popped up beginning in the 1840s and especially in the 1850s was part of the political realignment that the United States was undergoing at the time. The Free Soil Party, as its name would suggest, was a party that was formed over opposing the expansion of slavery. Free Soil referring to the idea that as the United States expanded territorially westward, those territories would be free of slavery. 
when they became states uh, admitted to the Union. And the Free Soul Party really formed um, as a result of the Mexican-American War. All of the issues that propped up during and after that war uh, involving the territory expansion of the United States, slavery being a huge one, and ultimately the inability of the Whig Party to remain united over whether or not they would oppose slavery's expansion or would agree to what was known as popular sovereignty at the time, which was the idea that people that were moving into the new territories would be able to decide uh, through elections whether or not slavery would be allowed to uh, expand or not. The Free Soul Party didn't last very long, and ultimately many of those like Blair who were involved in the uh, early formation of the Free Soul Party ended up forming the Republican Party. And we'll turn our story now back to Austin Blair because it is really that moment that he uh, is going to become very prominent, not only in Michigan politics, but national politics. So Blair is elected to the Michigan State Senate in 1854, and that same year, on the 6th of July of 1854, what I mentioned here a few moments ago, the first Republican Party convention takes place. Convention eh, may be a little bit of a stretch of the word. It was a meeting held in Jackson, Jackson, Michigan, where Blair was living at the time. And that meeting consisted of men such as Blair, where they formed a party that would formally take a stand opposing the expansion of slavery, but also... And a lot of people forget this about the Republican Party, would tie in their opposition to the expansion of slavery with what was at the time deemed a very uh, progressive, and some might even say uh, activist, economic policy in regards to the role that the government would play in what they believed was fostering economic growth. So... The Republican Party is definitely a party that is founded over the issue of slavery. It is very, very, very important, though, to note that the Republican Party's official stance was anti-slavery. It was not abolition. And that is not a technicality of word usage. The two were very different. Those that were abolitionists, as the name suggests, wanted to abolish slavery immediately and permanently, wherever it existed, and they wanted to do so by, well, in some cases, to quote a much later um, American historical figure, any means necessary. The anti-slavery stance, which is actually what the majority of the people that were opposed to the expansion of slavery believed in was actually as much an economic argument as it was a moral argument. Anti-slavery folks believed that slavery was an economically backward system. Many anti-slavery people also agreed with the abolitionists that it was a morally corrupt system. And 
being a combination of the two, anti-slavery people believed that the growth and progress and prosperity of the United States would forever be slowed by the existence of slavery. But they also recognized that much of the American economy was dependent upon slavery, both South and North. And they also recognized that the union of the American states would absolutely be threatened should slavery be abolished immediately or it proposed to be abolished immediately because many of the folks who were in politics at the time, of course, many of the prominent businessmen in America, they owned slaves. So the anti-slavery folks had the stance that if slavery were prevented from expanding further, it would die a natural death, and in doing so, would allow the United States to rid itself of this economically backward and morally corrupt institution, and thereby, in the minds of the anti-slavery folks, this was a way that the U.S. could accomplish the end of slavery without tearing the nation apart. Now, as it turns out, though, the anti-slavery stance was deemed by many Americans, North and South, to be an extremist stance. I think it goes without saying that Southerners who were slave owners would believe that, but it may be surprising to hear that there were a fair amount of Northerners, too, who believed that the anti-slavery stance was too radical. And... A lot of those folks instead adopted the idea that Lewis Cass, for example, a prominent Michigander from this era, uh, professed, and that was the idea of popular sovereignty, which I mentioned a moment ago. The idea that as the nation expanded, the issue of slavery could be resolved by having the people who moved into the newly acquired territories decide for themselves through election whether or not slavery uh, would exist. And that turned out to be viewed as the ultimate compromise position. Now, ultimately, though, the politics of the United States became polarized greatly over the issue of slavery. No uh, single stance was deemed to be sufficiently uh, acceptable to all regions of the United States. Those who were abolitionists believed that it was a moral wrong and slavery had to be done away with immediately. They were a minority, but they were a very powerful minority in some parts of the country. The anti-slavery folks, men like Austin Blair, who eventually formed into the Republican Party, believed that the economic backwardness of slavery combined with its moral corruption deemed it to be an institution that needed to be done away with but in a manner which did not harm the Union. And then the popular sovereignty folks believed this was an issue that could be voted away, and then those from the South, who are slaveholders, as well as some people from the North, too, um, believed that slavery needed to be allowed to persist. It was a states' rights issue. It was also, in their words, a moral issue. Very hard for us nowadays to even, I think, 
imagine that there were those who would argue that slavery was a morally wholesome and even necessary institution. Whether or not they believed that in between their own ears, there were certainly folks who did publicly profess such a stance. And that's the background thereby which the meeting in 1854 took place. And the formation of the Republican Party is one of these extremely important events in American history that has been remembered collectively in a variety of ways, um, some not so uh, serious, for example. Uh, the town of Racine, Wisconsin, also had one of the very first meetings of the organization of the party that became known as the Republicans, and they claimed themselves to be the home of the Republican Party, just as Jackson, Michigan does, as the organization there that took place in 1854. Some of the historical memory of the Republican Party, of course, is much more serious because it is tied so deeply into this absolutely cataclysmic event that eventually happens in the United States, that would be the Civil War. Austin Blair, then, features prominently in National Republican Party politics and, of course, state Republican Party politics, statewide leadership, national leadership, from really that point in 1854 on, when he begins his prominent role in the formation of the National Republican Party. And that's where we're going to leave off with this episode. Next episode of Land Stories, we will pick up here with our story of Austin Blair, and we are going to examine what happens next, not only in the formation of the Republican Party, but, of course, in Austin Blair's life. And as it turns out, that statue that stands in front of the Michigan Capitol building that we begin our exploration of Blair with at the beginning of this episode has quite the story to tell behind the man it depicts. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.